My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Chris, how good is that? Is that intro? Doesn't it just fire you up? I was thinking it's great, but it might need an update now, hey? <laughs> yeah. Well, two images from Senegal today. Everything's going. <laughs> Hopefully, it stays calm. I also hope so. I also Let's hope so. For peace. Gee, yeah. hey man, it's it's a bit of a bit of a terrible situation that's happening there. Hmm. yeah it's terrible it's obviously been going on for a while so let's see if any good comes of this you know? well what you and i are going to chat about is um money and the history of money um your name hasn't appeared on the screen so i'll have to find your why it's not there but okay so those watching chris becker is a good friend of mine um and also an economist and uh cryptocurrency expert have i got it right chris yeah you can say that i guess yeah <laughs> oh, listen i was i was in a I've lost, I worked with a, a Mac, hey i've lost money on crypto so this is an important conversation for me also <laughs> you said you were work you work what how did you how, how did you lose money were you speculating and hoping the price was going to go up Yes. And it didn't. It went down. Yes. Okay. I'm sure you've lost money on the RAND and on other things too in that case. <laughs> um, that's, uh, yeah, you know, trading and speculating is not an easy thing to do. Uh, yeah. It's left to the professionals. Um, if you want to speculate in something like um, cryptocurrencies, you need to, you're taking a long-term view, hey? Um, you're taking a bet on a new technology system that's going to yes. grow in adoption over time. And so you, we're talking like a 10, 20, 30 year trade that you're making here. So it's not, it's not for buying in and out within the space of a few months or even a couple of years. But listen, I wanted to mention uh, this, this tension that we're seeing in the real world happening between political uh, opponents, if I can call it that, sort of yeah. the, the, the left versus the right broadly. Mm. Um, and the trust breakdown that you're seeing in authorities. I mean, something that's been on the news, obviously, in the last two days has been Twitter's censorship of this New York Post article on yes. possible corruption in American politics at a critical juncture, you know, a couple of weeks away from an election. Um, the, the, the trust breakdown that we're seeing in, in centralized authorities, if I can call it that, uh, is, I believe, going to be solved by decentralized technologies such as the blockchain. And so if you can't trust a company who can censor information on the internet, which many people don't these days, mm. I see there's talk in the US around uh, amending, amending some section 230, which would um, basically make social media platforms liable for uh, you know, different forms of, of speech and stuff. I, I don't know the detail. Um, if, if you don't trust these business, businesses, which many people don't these days to you know, manage your information properly and allow freedom of speech, um, you can move to the alternative, which is something like a blockchain. And the concept of a blockchain is it's a data center that's not owned or controlled by anyone. So no central authority can block information being sent over it mm. um, or remove information that's been published on it. And I think... Someone like you, that's obviously going to be very interesting because I'm aware you've been looking for alternatives in the last few months. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, this is, this is why, or well, one of the things that you're going to, you, you and I are going to chat about. So I'm a fan of all things decentralized. Um, I'm a fan of, of any kind of competition. Cryptocurrency is, of course, um, that, that exact thing when it comes to money. But, Chris, before we talk even about crypto, don't you want to? Don't you want to give a bit of a a, a, a nice um, illustrated history of money? Because I think this is quite quite important to to how we get to where we are now. Uh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to illustrate it. <laughs> is that my job? <laughs> I, I'm going to talk about it, and I'll try and keep it interesting. <laughs> um, but um, what I wanted to say is, and I'm going to kind of lead into this, what I, what I forgot to sort of conclude with in my comment just now is, is that 
Um, what blockchain also offers is the ability to resolve these big conflicts of opposing worldviews yeah. by offering people an apolitical and neutral technology system and that anyone can trust and rely on. The left knows that the right can't control it and censor it, and the right knows that the left can't do the same thing. So it becomes this, this beautiful, elegant technology um, that's been around for 10 years now that people can use to, in effect, find common ground in an otherwise very tense backdrop. So, so um, it was that realization and linking up that with the political environment in 2015-16 and, and, and the growing tensions that, that led me to become very optimistic on cryptocurrencies that are coordination mechanisms for technology systems. And we can kind of get into that later on. But um, you asked about the history of money. So we're going to talk about Southern Africa because mm. uh, there's, there's obviously a lot that's going on in the history um, of money around the world. But basically, in the 1600s in Southern Africa, um, in, the, in the area today known as the Cape, as the Western Cape, the Khoisan lived there. Um, they used predominantly as money ostrich shell beads. Um, and ostrich shell beads were these tiny little beads that were made from uh, ostrich you know, eggshells. Mm. Um, and it would be cut out and carved out and, and made into a necklace. And you'd have many of these little beads. They were quite uniform and standardized. And people would use that as a way to communicate value with each other, to use it as money, to be able to trade. Okay. If you move into the area now known as KwaZulu-Natal, um, people there used assegai spear tips, mostly copper. In the northern areas, uh, sort of around northern Cape, and um, Pumalanga areas, there were copper um, forms of money that became, basically came down from places like Zambia that mm. used as money. The first, the first um, sort of paper money in the Cape or in Southern Africa was called the Rix dollar. Uh, that came into being in the late 1600s. The first central bank in Southern Africa was called the Lombard Bank, and the Lombard Bank was basically put in place to manage this Rix dollar currency. And the Rix dollar was basically silver, silver, um, put into bank deposits, you know, into bank vaults, and then, you know, banknotes would be minted that would be a claim on that silver. So there are a bunch of monies kind of in use, operating alongside each other, and, and different people understood their values, and, you know, different tribes could trade with each other using these money. Um, the Lombard Bank collapsed in the late uh, 1700s, I believe, and moving into the 1800s, we had a fully decentralized monetary system in SA. Gold became the dominant form of money, not just here, but also around the world. So the classical gold standard was very dominant in the 1800s. And in Southern Africa, people go to the Reserve Bank's website. They talk about this era of free banking in Southern Africa. So free banking was gold was money, so you could weigh gold and that had a value. Um, you could then put that gold in a bank. The standard bank was around uh, in those days, but there wasn't many other banks. Um, you'd put this gold in a bank uh, vault. They'd then create a banknote with a bank's name on it that said, this is a pound. This is worth a pound. And a pound was basically a pound of sterling, which was worth a certain weight of gold. And that was known as money. It was easier to trade these banknotes with each other. Mm. But what's interesting is there were 32 private banks all issuing their own private banknotes. There were two trading companies, I believe, or either two trading companies or two mining companies that also issued their own private bank notes. Because the Reserve Bank didn't exist, and the Lombard Bank, which was a central bank, had collapsed. So the 1800s were a period, was a period, basically, where, where you had free money and banking. Not free money in the sense that it was free to come by, but there was competition in money. Um, Wait, wait, wait. So you're so, saying that there were different monies being used and people could choose which they wanted to use. Exactly. So if you put gold at, say, Standard Bank and you got a bank note for that and somebody else put gold in another bank, say Nedbank, because uh, Nedbank was also around. I think its name was different. And you got a Nedbank bank note. People would assess the, the risks in each of those banks to say, does that bank have the gold that it say it has? Does it have 100% of the gold that I've put there? If it doesn't, you could then discount the value of that bank note relative to the other one where mm. there was more trust and faith in that bank. So you basically had this competitive monetary system. 
And right. that acted as a very good check on like, yes. uh, preventive fraud. And it was obviously, um, it made the banks accountable to their, to their customers or to their clients. They couldn't, they couldn't, yes. because what they were doing is they were issuing essentially an IOU, not so? Yes, exactly. You know, money's still an IOU today, but they've, the gold backing's removed. It's not there anymore. It's an IOU on some kind of government guarantee, basically. Uh, there's nothing there today. So that, that, that gold link was removed in 1971, but we're actually jumping over quite a bit of history if we jump straight there. Um, Sorry, my bad. Keep going. So, so, no, no, that was my bad. I'll jump forward. But so, 1800s, gold is money free banking, competition and money. Um, moving into the 1900s, World War I happened. Gold was leaving South Africa. Um, it meant to, it led to differentials in pricing between South African gold markets and currency markets and caused stress on the banking system. And the South African Reserve Bank was created in that environment to try and bring stability to this gold standard. This, this it was still on a pound standard, but it was a gold standard effectively. Um, I was created in 1921 and they opened their doors and for 40 years, all the Reserve Bank did was manage a foreign monetary standard. The first banknotes that the Reserve Bank created in the 1920s were, if you go and look at them, they'll say South African pounds issued by the South African Reserve Bank, basically. Um, and so that was a claim on, again, gold, looking into the British banking system. Um, at that time, using the pound, you still used pounds, shillings, and pennies. So you didn't have the decimal system that's comprised of a pound is divided up into cents, you know, 100 cents. Um, and that started changing in 1958. Between 1958 to 1961, there had to be a big campaign for the introduction of the RAND for the first time, which would then use the decimal system. And there's like quite a funny uh, jingle that's available online. So the government of the day created this jingle and this little character called Decimal Dan, the RAND <laughs> sense man. And people can find it on YouTube. And there had to be these campaigns to educate people on the changing money of the day. <laughs> and it's interesting because like most stores in South Africa at that time ran dual pricing. So they, they put up a price in both pounds and in rand so that people can understand the difference in the two in order to get their minds around this transition that's taking place. So that was 1961. Rand is introduced for the first time. The first rand coins, one rand and two rand coins, were literally like had, uh, had gold in them. Your... Uh, and silver, silver coins. Are they are they still today, in circulation somewhere, Chris? Sorry, for yeah. So you, you, as a collector, you can get these things. Okay. You can get a hold of them, but they 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 worth thousands of rands. So the purchasing power of the first rand is so different to the purchasing power of the rand today, because there was metal, like precious metal, inside the money itself. You know, it was like the definition of money was a weight of precious metal. So I mean, it was it was kind of like jewelry. Uh, jewelry melted down into a coin, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's value there. <laughs> Shiny, it's scarce, it's, it's uh, divisible, it's easy to recognize. Um, but yeah, obviously, jewelry is another use case for it. So that's the first rand, created in 1961. For the next 10 years, the Saab basically had to to the Bretton Woods system, run a gold standard still. You know, the whole world was on this sort of gold, this dollar reserve standard. So um, anyway, in 1971, the, the backing to these monies, the gold, that actually backed it, the value, was cut. And that, that was a, a result of global economic conditions, but basically the U.S. Federal Reserve, which is their central bank, um, experienced the run on their gold. So the, so the European Central Bank started withdrawing their gold from America, led by the French in the late 60s. Uh, and that forced President Richard Nixon to basically cut the link of the dollar to gold. And that basically meant, it's meant that the whole world since then has been on this free-floating uh, monetary system where you don't really define the money. It's just called something like legal tender, but it's got no real actual definition to it. Got no backing to it. 
And so the nature of the money changed dramatically in 1970. So Chris, hang on. So let me just quickly uh, summarize where we're at. So there was there was a period of time not so long ago where there were different excuse me there were different types of money that you could use and different currencies were competing sorry also just by the way can i say currency and money interchangeably yeah you can i think okay we can start getting technical into the semantics but it's not worth it okay so so there were different monies or currencies at one stage and you could choose which one you wanted to use um because because uh you know, the, the banks would offer, they would give you different um, incentives to use their money. Um, then then at the same time, the money was uh, was attached to uh, a resource like gold, which they kept. Am, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So the money was the gold. Anything else was a claim on gold. It was like a, a, a debt. Right. Okay. So, you. yeah. Okay. Right. And then, and then what happened was it all got forced into one thing under the reserve bank. And so all of those competing monies got taken out and got replaced with one that everybody now would have to use. Am I correct? Yes, yes. So the, the, the trend you're picking up on there is this, this era of decentralization and competition in money, which gives anti-fragility and robustness to an economic yes. system towards an era over the last century of increased centralization i think we've passed the pinnacle or the apex of that centralization era and we're moving back into a period of decentralization that's my right macro thesis. okay right so yeah. so where we where we where we went from there was then into a, a phase where our country decided to create its own currency called the rand and disconnected from from the uk uh reliance mm-hmm to the point where we are now, where we have, we can only trade in the rand. So that's, is that where we are right now? Yes. Yes. So, okay. so legal tender laws in South Africa prevents, prevents you from uh, accepting or spending dollars, let's say at a point of sale at a shop in South Africa. Okay. You have to settle in rand. And so everybody's forced into the system. This pattern repeats around the world. Basically. Right. Everybody's done that. And then at some point, as you said, in the sixties, the, the value of the money, which was attached to mm. a resource like gold was cut mm. and what replaced that nothing just legislation let's be clear let's be clear the money was the gold it was the silver okay the banknotes were a claim on the money okay so that 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 the money was removed we've been left with legal tender if you can call it that okay okay um and the, and, and so the definitions, however, of the monetary system, like the legal terms haven't changed. So if you look at the payments, um, payments regulations and laws in South Africa, when you move money from your bank to another bank, you're moving the claim on money. You're moving a loan to the bank, to somebody else. It gets technical, mm. um, but they, they, when you go through to the cash banknote, the cash banknote's not money itself. It's still a liability on the central bank's balance sheet. It's a claim to something, but it's not that those claims aren't there anymore. They've been removed, if that makes sense. Okay, but so it, it worked. It worked for a while because people understood the value of gold in the 1970s. Mm. Um, you know, gold had value. It was cut, so there could be a sort of smooth transition into a new monetary system where the the actual money wasn't there anymore, and we were all trading in these claims on money. Um, but, but that has had its downsides. Like, let me give another bit of context. So mm. in 1971, this, this, the money backing is actually removed and we're all using these claims on money, but there's not actual money behind the money. anymore. But the same thing that happens in 1971 is Intel produces the first microprocessor. So you could now start running complex computing programs on this chip multiple programs on a single chip. Okay, so what that means is the world becomes more digitized. Mm. What also happens is money becomes more digitized. Money at banks are ones and zeros. It's numbers in sophisticated spreadsheets. It's numbers in sophisticated databases. Banks today are technology businesses primarily. The, The amount of cash circulating in this economy as a percentage of the overall cash in the country is 2%. That's it. So 2% hang on, just, physical 
So you need to just so let for those who aren't economists, let's always keep this down to five year old levels. Like remember, I draw pictures for a living. So in other words, the amount of actual money, like ten rand notes and hundred rand notes, that is physically available. Are you you saying is what? What did you say? Ten percent. Two percent. Two percent. So where is all the other money? What is all the other money? The other money are it's electronic money. So it doesn't exist. It's electronic money. It does exist. It exists in electronic form. So I mean, information on your computer is it's there. It's real, mm. um, but it's electronic. And so what's happened since 1971 is money has become increasingly electronic. So before computers, obviously there was no electronic money. All money were banknotes. But as the as, as we became more attached to devices, money and payments have become increasingly electronic. So. So the amount of physical cash that we use is tiny in comparison to the electronic money that we use. But but the argument is that you can't just you can't the the the, the government or the reserve bank can't simply just create digital money, right? Or can they? So so the central bank can. And a couple of months ago, in the height of the COVID crisis, where there were uh, some distress, you know, in money markets. Mm. And the central bank basically pledged to come in and buy government bonds with newly created money. It's it's very possible. And in South Africa, that hasn't really happened uh, to a large extent where the central bank's done that. But in America and in Europe and in Switzerland uh, and in England, I mean, the levels of money printing is off the charts. I mean, I know America at the moment are printing money to put it into people's bank accounts. So that happens. Okay, so my, with my limited understanding, if you're printing money, does that not lead to inflation of prices of everything? Does, because it minimizes the value. The more, the more money that enters into the, the system, the less value everything has. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the value of the rand against something stable over time. So stable value over time is something like gold. Right. So if you look at gold today, an ounce of gold will be able to buy you a nice tailored suit with a pair of shoes, smart shoes, okay? like pretty much for an ounce of gold. An ounce of gold would have bought you the same thing 100 years ago, and it would, would have bought you the same thing 100 years before that. It's a very stable value in terms of other stuff. Now, if you compare the value of gold to the rand since 1971, the rand has lost 99.8% sure. of its value relative to gold. <laughs> So if you go and look at uh, like like old wimpy menus, for example, from the 1970s, early 70s and 80s, you'll see you could buy an entire breakfast for like one rand or 15 cents. <laughs> okay. So so yeah, the rand the rand is different today. It's very different. And you can think about money as a language through which we express value. Mm. You know, so if I said to you today, you know, I've got 100 rand to gift you, you know immediately what it's worth yep. in terms of other stuff. Mm. If I said to you, um, so I, I've got 100 Chinese renminbi to give to you. No, I wouldn't know what that means. You have no idea, no idea what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and so you can think of money as a language that expresses value. So, so and, and, and languages need to be stable over time. Um, and, and having a stable language in order to express not only like meanings, uh, feelings, intentions, Mm. agreements you know um that's very important there but it's also important in the economy where we are engaging in mutually beneficial trade mm. so you know if you if you put a couple of hundred rand under your mattress in the 1970s expecting that that value that can be expressed through it will be the same uh, in 50 years time you were very mistaken the language of money has changed dramatically and so that's, I think, a shortcoming of the way the system is designed today because it not only causes economic instability, but it makes it difficult for capital accumulation to happen. So if you want to save, you know, for future generations, um, it's hard today. You, you pushed into investing in the stock markets and in real estate and in other things to try and preserve capital because, you know, the money around the world isn't really doing the job. And so I think the response, that's why something like Bitcoin was created to create a money that cannot be increased in supply, e even though it's electronic. 
That's the innovation. It's the oh. first time that an electronic money has been created. Yeah. That self-governed scarcity. Okay, so just just to just to clarify, your credit card, for example, is is different to cryptocurrency in the sense that it's still connected to the bank. Yeah. So so what 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 you're doing with your credit card is your credit card is issued by a company like Visa. Visa is a network that helps banks communicate between each other. So you swipe your card, Visa sends a message through banks to say, hey, debit germs account, credit Chris's account, um, and, then the, and then the transfers happen in the background. Mm. That's all that Visa does. So Visa is just, a, you can think of it like WhatsApp on the internet. It's just communicating between different entities. Right. Just by the way, I'd prefer my account being credited from, from your account. Let's just, let's just sure, get the order true, correct. True, true. <laughs> sure <you do. laughs> so, so, okay, so then, so then, we, we, we hit the, the 21st century, a bunch of people are getting upset at, at the instability of, of money. They decide they're going to use technology, they're going to create an entire new system of trading. No, so, so for context, so like people have been trying to develop electronic monies since since computers began, you know. Um, Princeton University did a great study and this paper's available online. I think it's in a book format now, where they go through the history of innovations to create an electronic money like Bitcoin. It's been hundreds and uh, hundreds of failed experiments to create an electronic money. The, the, the challenge always was, how do you create an electronic money where you don't have to trust someone or an entity to manage that database. So if, if you've got a money and, and germ has got a spreadsheet at home where he's like creating new units of this money based on information that he's getting, how do we, how do we put a check and a balance on germ? And so the, the problem always was this kind of Twitter, big tech, centralized tech conundrum. How do you trust these guys that issue the money? So that, was, that was always the problem. Even if you could trust them, you couldn't trust other people around them. So if people could hack into that system and they could go and make changes to that database, they could create money out of nothing. Mm. So that was the central, excuse the pun, like the central reason for these centralized tech systems for money always failing. Bitcoin then, after these decades of experimentation, mashed together a whole bunch of concepts using peer-to-peer -peer protocols and this blockchain, which was first invented in the early 90s, mashes it all together to create an electronic form of, form of money where you don't have to trust any single entity, but you can trust this computer network to do it by itself. Mm. So, okay, so, that's, so... That's the innovation of Bitcoin. All right, so, so enter now, when was it? 2008, nine? Yes, yes. Nine. Okay. And what? What is his? What's his name? No one knows if it's a him or a team or whatever. Satoshi Nakamoto is the pseudonym, and I mean whoever it is or a group of people, we're not quite sure. But absolute genius who stumbles upon this innovation, mashes together these these concepts. Bitcoin starts trading, I think, in 2010, and it's worth almost nothing, and the network grows and grows as technologists and engineers understand how this new system works, you know, people start adopting it. It starts off very slowly, um, not very secure in the early days, had a bunch of bugs in the software, but the software is open source. So again, big difference to how money works today. So uh, an engineer, let's say, let's say you wanna know what's happening inside your bank's technology systems. Mm. You need to become a software developer and actually be employed by the bank in order to get any type of access to the bank's technology systems to see mm. the code, to see what's going on there. Um, but you're also then just going to see a sliver of the, of the code. You're not going to see the whole thing and how it all fits together. Um, you're, not, you're not going to be able to get a view of a central bank's technology systems and what they're doing to manage the money either. Same process. Um, whereas here, developers could suddenly just download the software. It's all open on the internet. 
analyze it and suggest improvements to it yeah. and innovate and build new code on top of it. In, in other words, build businesses connecting into the software. So that's like, that's the, that's why this technology has grown so quickly is because software developers and engineers, no matter where they sit on the planet, as long as they've got connections to the internet and they can read code and they can understand Bitcoin's code, they can build businesses that leverage that technology, which is a money and a payment system primarily. So that's why you've seen a lot of development and innovation happening in such a short space of time in Bitcoin. Okay, but Chris, I mean, I have these conversations fairly regularly with like the old toppies. To try and explain this is impossible. I, I, even I struggle to explain it. They'll go, well, what is it? And how does it have value? How is it? Okay. How does it have value? Yeah. So, I mean, you can ask these questions of, of anything, right? And people have this, this debate, central banks love this debate of something not having intrinsic value, and that's why it can't be money. But nothing has intrinsic value. All value is subjective. Depends on how we value this thing. So, so how do you value something? Is you need to understand it, and you need to have use for it. And the, the people who understand something like Bitcoin primarily today are, I'd say, mostly engineers and technologists. And you're starting to see your more macroeconomic thinkers wrapping their head around the technology pieces to understand it in order to, to realize that this is the first ever scarce electronic money that's ever existed in history. Okay, this is a startup money. Mm. You don't see these opportunities come by very often where money is created and starts to bootstrap a value in a community of users who understand it and value it from that thing. Like, this doesn't happen very often. And so you, I'd say you, you've got about 100 million people around the world who are actively using this technology, mostly computer programmers and developers, because you have to understand tech in order to understand it. And you're starting to see your more investment-driven guys coming into it because they see an opportunity to invest in something that could become huge. But the rest of people are getting stuck in the detail of like, how does this technology work? And like, when you talk about old toppies, it's not just old toppies, it's across the board. Um, I think there's just more reservations from your older generation to new technologies. You typically see new technologies being adopted by younger generations first, because they have less to lose. And they have less preconceived ideas of how money and banking or technology or communication should work. You know? Some people still send postcards around Christmas. You know, they, they dig that, and that's fine. Um, but you're not going to see their, their, you know, teenage family members sending postcards. They're going to be sending messages and e-cards and all that stuff. Um, but when people get too stuck in the detail, like we having this chat on a web, a browser-based video over internet and voice over internet protocol, how does this work? Mm. How does this work? Do you have any idea how this works? No. What's happening in the back? Like, how, how is my picture being taken from here and reassembled, sent over the internet, voiced the sound of my speech coming over the internet to you, but not just to you, to all the people watching this, and who will watch it in the future? Where is this information going to be stored? You don't have a clue how any of this works. How are you going to explain it? I can't. But... The value is in, you can do this, you can scale information. And so the value of something like Bitcoin is, you can now have an electronic money that people over the internet can trust and use. I can send you Bitcoin if you're sitting in China and I don't have to have my bank trust an intermediary who trusts your bank in China in order for me to send you money. Bitcoin is a system that we can all trust. It minimizes trust in sending value over the internet. All right, that's so, the value. That's huge. And it's a separate money. It's not touched by the government or the Reserve Bank. You have to, you have to, you have to use money at least to buy into it, or somebody must give you. But from there, you can trade and generate outside of the current system. Yes or no? Yeah. So, so it's a it's a money monetary technology that now is part of the internet part of the internet's protocols, okay? 
Um, just like you have voice over internet protocol, you have simple mail transfer protocol, you have TCP IP, you've got a bunch of stuff going on on the internet. Bitcoin is a money over internet protocol. That's what it is. You don't have to get into the details. You can okay. spend money over the internet. And in order to buy some Bitcoin, you need to sell some rands for it, or you have to work for it. You know, you have to do your job. You know, maybe an advertiser pays you in Bitcoin. To you have to it. work for it. And then you do it. You oh no, socialists. Yeah, Socialists will never want Bitcoin then because they have to work for it. See, it's, uh, <laughs> so here's what's interesting about that is, <laughs> is the left socialists like it because big banks and capitalists don't control it. Mm. It's controlled by everybody. It's publicly owned and governed. So interesting, that dynamic. Whereas the right also like it because there's competition in money. So the capitalist free market spirit in the, in, the, in the broad right, if I can call it that, like this technology too because, well, you can compete. Mm. You don't have to have a monopoly on money operating in your country. And so, so fascinating dynamically. And that's how, that's how it's something that creates a level of trust between the two sides. We don't agree on the politics, but hey, we can agree that this technology does what it says it does and we can't change that. Trump can't change that. Joe Biden can't change that. No one can change it. So it's great to create trust. Um, and I think that's why it's going to become critically important to resolve conflict around the world in this era that we're in, which is characterized by, typically characterized by civil wars. Like fourth turnings are um, eras of, of heightened tension and typically civil war. So like if you look at America, for example, if you go back the last uh, few centuries, uh, there's this 80-year pattern that tends to repeat itself. And there's a lot of work that's gone into this research. And people can Google the book, Fourth Turning, um, to get more insight on these generational cycles. But in a nutshell, in 1776 in America, the War of Independence happened, which is where Americans basically took independence from the British colonial. 1776. 80 years later, the U.S. Civil War happened. North versus South, secessions mm. happened, a whole bunch of stuff was going on. That was 80 years later. 80 years later, it was the Great Depression, World War II era. And if you fast forward another 80 years, we're in an era of heightened tension. And I yeah. think historians will look back and possibly date a start of another civil war in the U.S. by the classification of Antifa as a terrorist organization. So it's an era of mess, messiness and tension. And this technology is being born in this environment where you can resolve a lot of this conflict, potential conflict mm. with something that's neutral and apolitical. So I'm very excited about that. Okay, so, but before we continue about crypto, I just want to ask you a question quickly. So money, money is fairly unstable. I mean, how old is the RAND? What, 50 years, 60 years? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What is, I mean, how, what is the oldest money? Other than, I mean, I'm talking about physical cash issued by a, like a government, the dollar. So, 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 okay, so sorry, the RAND is 60 years old, but the, the way that we understand the RAND today is 50 years old, okay? So okay. Without the cold backing. And quest, your question is, when were the first paper monies created by government? The first yeah. experiments with, with it were in, like, China, I don't mm. know exactly how long ago, but a couple of thousand years ago. No paper money has ever lasted. There's no paper money that's been in existence. I mean, they always get hyperinflated away. They right. typically always get destroyed. And a recent and example is the Zimbabwean dollar, which is now pretty much gone. Yeah, and the Venezuelan Bolivar, I think their currency is, also just recently disappeared. But the gold, for example. Pound was something else that also recently came into existence and yeah. also really hyperinflated. But I mean, gold and silver, for example, have been around thousands of years. And where I'm going with that now is... Do you think cryptocurrency will be around for the long haul? Yeah, so I do. Yeah, I mean, I think these are new internet protocols that are only just getting started. I mean, no one knows the future for certain, obviously. The future is a closed book. Uh, but it would be a question like, is the internet going to be around forever? Probably, yes. Are the yes. internet protocols going to be around? I think so. I think so unless there's something serious <laughs> that happens. The internet protocols are useful for communicating. 
the way we use the internet might change. So, mm. you know, centralized technology systems might be trusted less going forward. You know, the likes of Facebook, who sits on all your data, who controls what you can and can't say, might be, but might be in less demand because they're less trusted. And what mm. could fill that void is blockchains, which stores that, which can store that kind of information. It cannot be removed. It cannot be censored. Um, so the way that we use these protocols are going to change. I think they're all going to be around, but I think blockchain is going to be much bigger today uh, in 50 years' time than it is today. Okay. Now, before we go into what the heck is blockchain, because that's something that I don't know and I've never been able to wrap my head around it. Let's just quickly take a question. Sorry, I've ignored the comments, and I think you can see them as well. But oh, yeah. Sung wants to know, uh, Chris, do you think cryptocurrency will attract value-added tax in the future? It depends on the, the type of crypto asset. So if something's considered money, which no crypto assets are currently being considered in, in, in South Africa, but let's say it is, um, it most likely won't attract that. But you can get crypto tokens that um, are almost like consumer goods, they're utility tokens. It's like a coin-operated ride in a shopping mall where, where kids can hop on a, on a pony and ride it if they put a coin in. So some tokens are like that, but for internet applications, those might draw that, for sure. Mm. Um, you know, and obviously it's going to be interesting to see how regulations are formed for this stuff. Um, but yeah, it may, may, may not. Um, uh, I, I mean, you know, things like income tax, capital gains taxes, those things kind of already apply if you own and buy and sell these things. So just be aware of that. Yeah, I also have no issue with putting a coin in, a coin in and riding a pony for, for 45 seconds, Chris, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> um. Speaking of money over the internet, sorry, just Mareka, thank you for sending me money over the internet. She was <laughs> using the, the super chat protocol. <laughs> just, anyway, nice. Chris, what is Good what job, is blockchain and, and, and how does it connect up to this to cryptocurrency and, and everything else? Okay, so um, I use the word blockchain. I typically don't like to do that because blockchain is just a part of what makes these technology systems work so it's but it's but it's a ledger it's like a spreadsheet that's designed a little differently mm. in that that spreadsheet is synchronized on on thousands of computers around the world and has a specific type of data structure that means no one can go and change information on it fraudulently but what it enables is incredibly powerful stuff so bitcoin enables this scarce electronic money Ethereum, which is another blockchain network, it's got different intentions and as a result, it's designed differently. But Ethereum is designed as a world computer on top of which you can form agreements. So on Ethereum, you can use things that are known as smart contracts. And a smart contract, something actually, it's not that smart, it's actually very simple. Um, they're very simple if-then functions. So like if you go to a vending machine, um, the vending machine is listening to, you know, checking for coins being dropped into it. Because if five rand is dropped in here and Chris presses B6, then drop him a bar one. That's a smart contract, basically. But what you can now do with that type of software or that code, that logic, is you can deploy that on a, on a blockchain technology like Ethereum in order to start forming financial agreements. So we can say, between me and you, John, we can say, you know, if... If, if Chris sends germ one ether, return to Chris X amount of wrapped Bitcoin, let's say. So you can start trading with each other, trusting the technology and the smart contracts that has some type of logic to it in order to start building an entirely new financial system. And that's typically what people refer to when they speak about blockchain. It's this programmability to make a currency do more than just moving from me to you. And it's, and, it's, and it's fairly stable and unbreakable. Yeah, so when that code's on the blockchain, it, it's, it's very stable. You know, software developers can make mistakes at times, so you, there can be bugs in code. 
Mm. And uh, oftentimes what you see with smart contracts, there are bugs. And, you know, so, so they don't work that well. But we're seeing, and there's obviously a lot of innovation that's going on here, but, you know, there's a bunch of smart contracts that are starting to fit together on Ethereum to form an entirely new financial system. And it's known sort of colloquially in the industry as DeFi, which stands for Decentralized Finance. Mm. And Arturian, you've got you've got not only a currency like ETH that can move over the Ethereum blockchain between people, just like Bitcoin does, but I can lend my ETH to you. And in that agreement, we can have repayment terms and interest specified. Okay? Um, I can use my Ether as collateral to take out a loan. I can then move that loan to somebody else. I can... Um, you know, do peer-to-peer trade. So if you've got an asset and I've got an asset on Ethereum, we can do a peer-to-peer transaction. Um, I can put funds into a smart contract that basically allocates my capital on Ethereum mm. to earn the best interest or yield in the opportunities that are available. Um, there are derivatives. You can take bets now, bets mm. on positions through derivatives contracts on Ethereum. You can do predictions markets, so you can predict on the outcome of events on something like Orca. Um, or the, or the US so election. Much, or the US election, yeah. There's just so much going on, honestly. And that's the power of blockchain. But I don't think many people, you know, a lot of people talk about smart contracts and blockchain, but they're not quite sure what's going on there. Um, well, people can go to a website like defipulse.com. Just put that in and go and look at some of the top DeFi projects. I mean, there's billions of dollars locked in, into the system. Uh, some of these projects have grown thousands of percent, no joke, in the, since the start of the year. Sure. Explosive. Um, it is a lot of really cool stuff happening on blockchain. So just to, just to bust a few myths here, um, buying Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency uh, as a way to make money is probably a very bad idea. Uh, yeah, look, so, so it depends what you're doing. So you could be trying to buy something at a low price in order to sell it at a higher price. That's, that's speculating on price you're trading. Um, it's a good idea if you get your timing right and you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, which um, I got wrong. Like you find out, like you can easily get your timing wrong, you know, and you, you end up losing money for a while at least. Um, but there are other things you can do to that. So like I explained DeFi to you, you can go and you can buy a dollar stable coin. So it's basically a dollar on top of a blockchain like, like Ethereum. And then you can put it into a liquidity pool, which facilitates trading between other people. And you can then earn a portion of those trading fees over time. So it pays you a return. So that's one way you can generate an income on on, on crypto assets and today, wait, and wait it's called it's called stablecoin and it's 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 linked to the dollar yes it's linked to the dollar it's popular today because the dollar is reasonably stable you know and it still is i don't think it's going to stay like that forever but for now it is you know? mm. um and see after this it's become very popular there's so many use cases. There's a new network that's actually just the, the main network launched yesterday, and it's called Filecoin. And Filecoin is like a, it's like a, it's like a torrent, a BitTorrent network, decentralized storage, but it's got its own currency unit to coordinate and incentivize users on the network. So in other words, like if you're going to store some information on your computer, let's say it's video files uh, on a torrent. You got to seed, you know, you got to create like a folder in your computer and you're going to then seed those files back to the network. At the moment, you don't get incentivized to do it. In other words, you don't get paid to do that. Filecoin is going to pay you to do that. And Filecoin is a layer that will connect to Ethereum that will enable a decentralized Facebook because the information doesn't have to sit in Facebook's data centers, but it can sit on, the, mm. on computers all over the internet that are connected to Filecoin. Um, uh, but its currency could also become a payments asset. It can compete with Bitcoin over time. So, so Filecoin becomes super popular. Um, it'll be a currency that's great. There's an interesting comment. Bitcoin is dependent on physical computers, which all sit on someone's land, which could be expropriated by unethical states. Therefore, Bitcoin is subject to the socialist mindset. 
Yeah, but there's regulatory arbitrage. You know, so not all governments are going to ban this thing. I mean, if people think China is going to ban it, I think they need to think again. China seeing this is an opportunity to have an alternative to the SWIFT payments network. Um, China's, uh, you know, Chinese companies are big players in mining. Um, the Chinese government a couple of weeks ago on state media were basically promoting cryptocurrencies to get, I think, the public to invest and start adopting these assets. Because if Donald Trump decides to cut China out of the SWIFT global payments network like they did with Russia, it means if they're using crypto, those people can continue trading with the rest of the world. So China, so anyway, I just wanted to mention like that kind mm. of angle. Um, and, um, but yeah, Venezuela could ban it. I think Kenya has banned it. I think it's, um, it's not banned, but it's very hard to use. But honestly, like, it doesn't matter. You know, these data centers, these computer, I mean, this information's available on, as long as it's available on a couple of thousand computers around the world, you can function. You know, another criticism of this is the internet can be shut down, so you won't be able to transact in Bitcoin. Look, the reality is uh, there's a company called Blockstream that's got a, that's got a satellite in space that, that beams down Bitcoin transaction information in the same way that VSTV satellites beam down information on TV shows. So you can get cut out the internet, but if you can point a little satellite dish at space, you can also receive and send these, these messages. Feature. Look at so it's going to be extremely hard to take down. Yeah, and I think it'll be easier to take down Facebook. Way easier to take down. Facebook. Yeah, I mean, and that comment. There's a comment here which I've seen actually come up a few times. Uh, since you need electricity to run the computer network, so in a sense you are burning oil to run Bitcoin. The energy requirement of the network is more than some African countries. Yeah, so that's in, that's in its initial phase. So, so like Bitcoin energy intensive because that, that creates a disincentive for anyone to hack the network. Mm. So like it had to be designed in the way that it was designed. So any malicious actor has to go and exceed the current energy consumption to try and manipulate the network. Mm. So that's, that's a benefit. Like that's a good, that's a good thing. And interestingly, most of Bitcoin's mining uh, energy requirements are going green. So like if, we, if you, people can go and analyze those trends. But that's not to say that all blockchains are going to be as energy intensive as Bitcoin. Ethereum, for example, is way less energy intensive and it's moving to a new design that will be capital intensive rather than energy intensive in order to generate consensus for transactions. So like technical yeah. stuff to say, this is not going to last like this forever. You know, the first TV sets were ginormous too, mm. you know, they're much thinner now. And the same types of innovations are coming to blockchain too. So people just need to be patient. And if it's a, if it's a concern to people, well, you know, chip in, try and improve the efficiency of these networks. Yeah, and, and huge I, opportunity. I've seen this comment as well a few times. Uh, cash and gold is king in its own way. Don't, don't back on only technology. Look, here's the thing, right? If you're carrying cash or gold, it can be stolen from you and then you don't have it anymore. Um, if the yeah. bank decides to close its doors, you can't physically go into the bank and get anything from the vault. So you're still very reliant. I'm not saying that gold is bad or something, but I'm just saying that it's a physical entity that can physically be taken away from you. You, It can be blocked from you, you know? Um, whereas if somebody takes your cell phone, you could you could essentially just go to another device, log onto your, or log into your wallet and your cryptocurrency is still there no matter where you are in the world yep it's on it's on a distributed network so it's on this global computer network so if you can memorize your password your private key to your bitcoin you walk across any border and you've, you own your bitcoin you can access it from anywhere you can again net connect to a wallet which connects to the network mm. I mean, that that's that's powerful you know when during the holocaust when jews were Fleeing flee Germany in very dangerous times, all of their assets were confiscated and expropriated from them. In the Russian Communist Revolution, same thing happened. You know, people lost everything. They had to move somewhere and start from scratch. You don't have to do that again. Oh, but Chris, you can, you can lose your Bitcoin you just as that. easily. Well, you can. So you need to be smarter on how you how you manage it. And I think, you know, there's businesses and technology designs that makes it safer. To own these things as well 
where you don't just have to rely on yourself, but you can trust, you know, trust family and friends, a guardian or custodian, and so on and so forth. But I mean, at this point in time, um, the custodian of your money is essentially the state. And uh, cryptocurrency is not the state. Well, well, the custodian of your money is your bank, and, and your bank is regulated. Mm. But it also depends on the banking jurisdiction that you're operating in. But yes, on, on something like Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, there's this distributed network that is your bank, um, and you can control your, your assets in that bank. No one else can access it. I mean, it's, it's secured by cryptography. Cryptography that can't even be hacked, can't be hacked by anyone right now. Mm. Mm. Right. And it's defensive uh, technology. You can think of it as a defensive technology. You can protect your own assets with very little force. Um, it can't be cracked. So, so yeah. A couple of minutes left. What does the future hold in your view, in your crystal ball, Chris? So there's a view that it's it's like a it's, it's all binary. You know, when it takes all type of mentality. So you hear this, you know, with the gold uh, rebuttal typically. Yeah, but gold is great in apocalypse you know because the internet's not, not going to be up so i'm not expecting a the apocalypse um but i am expecting a world of competing currencies competing mm. technologies i think crypto assets cryptocurrencies tokens utilities all these things um are going to operate alongside each other uh mostly harmoniously mostly complement well mo mostly complement each other and create synergies between you know, gold's not that useful on the internet today, but if you can tokenize gold on blockchain, you've suddenly got something powerful. Um, I think we're going to see way more of that uh, and a lot less of this, 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 these conversations of like Bitcoin or nothing, which you often see, um, or gold or nothing, or rand or nothing. So that's, that's what I'm expecting to see over time. I'm expecting to see these technologies grow in adoption. I think... Everyone who's connected to the internet in the next few decades will, in some shape or form, le be leveraging and benefiting from, from blockchain technology. They might not even know it in the same way that we don't know what's powering this call on the back end. Mm. It's going to be there. Uh, and that means it's going to have more value and more usage. And I would also say that it's going to take time. Uh, the internet was first being built in the 1960s um in america it took 50 years before we were all on it i mean the internet you had a bit of an internet tech mania in the late 90s like we weren't all on the internet mm. yet. it was clunky it wasn't great if you had university uh, in the early 2000s you had to like go to a computer center to go, <laughs> go get your email that's not that long ago and now we've all we've got the power of the internet in our pocket and we used think about it we used Netscape. Do you remember that? Yes. Yes. And what? Yeah. ICQ or IRC. What's, okay, I don't remember that. Those were like chat rooms or something. Yeah, so so we used a bunch of different stuff that we can't even really remember. Mm. Our phone's a decade old. Um, you know, but, but these protocols have been being built over decades. And it's going to be the same for blockchain. It's, yes, it's energy intensive. Yes, it's not that scalable. These things are being resolved. And, and once those things are resolved, and it's going to take a couple of decades, I think, everybody's going to be connected to it. And we're going to sit and go, wow, I can't remember. Mm. That, I can't believe that we used to do money in a way that we did. That's my expectation. Uh, that, that, that's, what, that's what we Look, are building for and planning for. And if we're wrong... Um, well, it's, 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 it's flipping exciting being a part of this journey. Um, and there's so much energy and so much innovation and so much mm. collaboration going on, not just in a small little part of South Africa, but uh, amongst communities all over the world. We all, we're building a new language and a new way of expressing value and communicating value and forming agreements. It's so insanely cool. Um, I, I have very little doubt that it's, it's going to work out. I, um, look, I mean, whether or not it works out, 
isn't really important to me. I am a fan of competition and less reliance on on the government and state regulations. So if if this leads to more competing money or more competing currencies, why would anybody want to oppose that, Chris? Okay, so regulation. Uh, let's talk about that. So when you have money that's not inherently scarce, that's electronic. Like the rand. You need, like the rand. You need to trust your bank. Okay? So banks internally have various checks and balances to prevent <laughs> what checks. happened to BDS. You made a pun. <laughs> but but VBS Bank, Jim, remember that, those guys? They were running their biggest loan book on an Excel spreadsheet. Okay? And you know what you can do on Excel? You can add numbers easily. Well, they, they added a billion rand in numbers to their balance sheet. That's how they created money out of nothing. People can go and read the advocates' report on what happened with BBS. They created money out of nothing. So if you, you couldn't trust that bank. So auditors are there to check on a bank's balance sheet, to check its books, to make sure that it's not creating money out of nothing. Okay? If you can't trust the auditors, VBS was making loans to its auditors, well, then that trust system falls down. Okay? Regulators also rely banks on banks to have auditors. There are regulations in place mm. to make sure that, that's there. Um, okay, so that falls down sometimes, and then the regulator steps in you know, to, to resolve these disputes and issues. But you can't always trust the regulators because they could also, I mean, we're all human. You know, regulators are human. Mm. And there's, there's, there's good and evil, you know, and, mm. and, and bad stuff. Good people can do bad stuff. And when that happens, who's going to check the regulators? And so, so the current financial system is set up to have these, again, upon checks and balances on electronic money. Okay. What Bitcoin does, what Ethereum does, is it does that by itself. It self-governs the money. You don't need an auditor for it. The software is the auditor. You don't need a regulator for the auditor and the bank because the software is the regulator. That's pretty powerful. If you, try, if you go to Bitcoin and you try and change the code, the, the network self-regulates to reject you. You get kicked out. It's highly regulated. This is the most regulated money and the best regulated money ever. Like, nothing's better than this. Mm. You cannot name me an example that's better than this. Okay. So, so there's a huge part of regulation now that becomes redundant. Yes, of course, there needs to be consumer protection. That's why the focus of regulation right now is to prevent the scams, is to protect consumers against putting money into something where there's going to be an exit scam, which means Germ sets up a company, Germ says, I do Bitcoin investments, people send you Bitcoin, and then you disappear. So, so what you can see there is humans can still be bad. You can still have bad actors. So we have to then put regulations and checks and balances in place mm. in order to prevent that. But the technology itself is regulated. Most regulated money ever. That's pretty brilliant stuff, and it's a great way to end the conversation. I don't know if you can hear, but there's a dog that's barking next door, and I really want to go and shoot it. <laughs> or, or buy it. That is not mine, because my dog sometimes goes postal here. So <laughs> Chris, that was a great... <laughs> That was a great conversation. Um, I'll share the link and get people to watch it. But we'll get people to watch it after today's events because everybody's interested in Cynical. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm so, sure. listen, thanks for your time, Chris. Uh, I've got your links under the video. And uh, people want to follow you on Twitter, they can. And um, I think... I think that's about it. You've covered pretty much everything there is to know for us lay people. Yeah, people need to, I mean, it's, it's very exciting what's going on. Um, the interfaces are being built for, for sort of consumers to start interacting with the stuff. And mm. I, I would really encourage people to get involved. Um, the economy, the traditional economy is under pressure, but the opportunities here are just so vast because you can build financial services applications and businesses mm. that just lives on the internet you know 
it's it's incredibly powerful. So um, I tweet about the stuff, so people are keen to like follow some of these updates on there. And but Jim, if there's anything you want to chat again in the future, let's do it. Man. Absolutely. No, no, no. I definitely, I definitely have an interest in the uh, in crypto and its future. So I'll definitely get you back on, and uh, we'll we'll chat more about um, actual real world applications and not just theory. I think I think that's cool. what people also want to know. But until then, Chris. Yeah, yeah. cool man. Okay, Jim. My name is Jim. This was Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. <laughs>